again. Beautiful morning. Uh, probably some of you have heard of the Gallup poll. So George Gallup, and he's done polls for uh, an evangelical Christian world. Um, I don't know how accurate these polls are. They're, they're probably pretty close. Pretty close to those statistics as the these experts run the numbers and he uh, had a poll that uh, said that fewer than 10% of evangelical Christians could be called deeply committed. Less than 10% deeply committed to Christ. Many of those who profess Christianity don't even know the basic teachings is what they found in this poll and they... uh, really don't even act differently than uh, the rest of the world in their Christian walks. Uh, George Barna also found that almost half of evangelical Christians read their Bible once a week or less. It's 50% either nothing or only one time a week. It's rather alarming, isn't it? Well, uh, the reason we say that because this is about commitment that uh, the text is dealing with today. The text last week talked about the Great Supper and the invitation that was extended to the leaders, people of Israel. And uh, they turned it down, really. They just had excuses, and so they didn't even show up. But God was showing that He provides everything that they need at this banquet. Everything. He provides it all. It's all sufficient that He has. Quite a provision. This week is quite an abrupt shift as He shows us the cost of following Christ they are invited most people turn him down but he goes out into the highways and the byways brings people in and then he says something like what he's going to say in our text today it's uh, salvation is free like that invitation is yet it will cost you your very life how does that make sense You receive it freely at no expense to you. But once you receive it, you are committing your life and everything about you to Christ. Now, are you all in? That's our title today. One could probably protest on this as, boy, This is a contradiction. It's free, but it'll cost me. That doesn't make sense. Well, consider, uh, let's say, somebody that you know has an airplane and he invites you to ride on the airplane with him. He invites you totally without cost, free. He's going to pay the gas. It's his plane. He's going to cover everything that needs to be. You just take that free offer and you ride on that plane. What you've just done, though, is you've committed your whole life into His hands. 
You're trusting Him to take you up in the air and then bring you back. (laughs) There's a free offer. But I am to be totally committed to Christ. I've entrusted my life into the hands of the pilot. I'm not a co-pilot. He is the pilot. He knows where we're going. And he, he actually is like what we talked about last week. He invites us freely. We partake of this water, the water of life. It's free. Free to everyone who thirsts. Then we have to understand we are no longer our own. He owns us. We've been bought with a price. So to truly follow Christ is to consider the cost. That's what we'll be looking at. We've been talking talking a lot about the cost of discipleship throughout Luke. And again, it's like that today, but it's about this is a cost. And you need to consider the cost as he will elaborate on here today. He doesn't want people to begin to follow him and then to turn back. That's what this is about. You could get a lot of people in a building, have a great invitation, as I've seen so many times in the Christian concerts, and it just wore me out. Because they would invariably give the invitation I don't have anything wrong with that necessarily, but for them to come down. I remember watching a concert called David and the Giants, that group. I kind of liked them. After that night, I didn't like them anymore. (laughs) They played played a good concert. Music was good. I don't know if anybody else knows. I know Bob knows of them. Uh, They... They, they were good. I liked them. And then they did the invitation. You go, okay. I kept extending the invitation because nobody walked down to the stage. So they kept doing it. And they got real emotional. And so a couple of people came down. And that gets maybe a couple more. All of a sudden you have 10, 20, 30, 50. You say, well, that's great. Maybe. The problem is, is, first of all, they didn't even offer the gospel correctly. They showed how good it is if you would accept Jesus into their life. They never talked about sin and their problem that they have They can't get into the kingdom of God the way that they are unless they repent. Um, It came down that night, but I can tell you what, it was well over 100, probably 150, because they kept begging for people to come down there. made a good showing because they can put that in their papers that they had 150 people walk the aisle or respond to the invitation. Sounds good, looks good. And they go on to the next town. Then they went a little bit further and got into some really weird stuff as they did. And I go, oh. 
this is really not right at all. It really had nothing to do with the gospel, the gospel that Jesus offered. What to true eternal life is, and so um, Jesus doesn't want that kind of crowd where he's just got a lot of people following him, thinking they are believers, and they're not. He doesn't want that at all. He'd rather have a little group of people that are true rather than a whole lot of people coming behind Him that are not true. And that's what you will see here again as we uh, demonstrate this in these texts. Um, Jesus takes His decision about or, uh, this teaching about true discipleship, takes it to the extremity. I know it's extreme to the very severity of it, takes it to the max. It seems when you study the words of Jesus, instead of making it easy, sometimes it's a little hard. Because the way that He's presenting it, it, wait a minute, wait a minute, people are going to respond to that. If you give out all the goodies and you promise them things, then they might like that. Hey, if you get a free CD, if you come down. (laughs) See, it seems like more than often than not, I I would say he's making some of these invitations really kind of hard. In fact, by most human assessments, I think it would be virtually impossible, which it usually comes out to be. Uh, there's a term Bob you've used a lot down through the years I think it's gospel light remember that we used to hear that quite a bit gospel light great taste less filling (laughs) that is what is offered mostly today as people invite people to Christ they uh, actually invite what would be called a casual Christianity. Carmel and Key, casual Christian. Think about that; those two terms for a moment. Because they were talking about what we're talking about here. I don't want to be. I don't want to be a casual Christian. Do you guys want to be a casual Christian? I think you get the idea of what that means. It's a milk toast style of Christianity, watered down. What a shame. The true gospel is to follow Christ as He gives a call to self-denial. It's not a call to self-fulfillment at all. It is not Christianity light. It's not a man-centered, self-loving, psychologically defined kind of a message. But it's talking about submitting everything to Christ to find your life by losing it. To gain your life by abandoning it. You know, these things don't make sense to the regular thinking. To live it to the fullest by emptying it. There's no Christianity light in the Bible, is there? You won't find it at all. There's no Christianity light in the teachings of Jesus whatsoever. Matter of fact, they're really difficult. And you go, wow, I never thought of Jesus this way. Matter of fact, it's blowing my mind. And I've read this for years and years and years. I've read Luke before. 
We've studied it before. You know, every time you get into Scripture, you see things that you haven't seen before. You guys know what I mean, right? Or all of a sudden, the impact of it starts hitting you. And you go, wow, He really did say it that way. And He really did mean it that way. It's rather shocking. Sometimes His words were not very friendly. If you caught that before, as He was at the meal that He's invited to, and He starts a controversy. Said some things they didn't like. Sometimes His words are frightening. You ever looked at the Holy God in the Old Testament too? You have... How about the man who tried to catch the ark before it fell and hit the ground? Seemingly like he was doing a good thing. Korah's rebellion. People wiped out. That man who tried to catch that, God took his life. Korah's rebellion, same way. You look throughout. How about Canaanites being destroyed by the thousands and the thousands? God killed them. Then in the New Testament, you have a couple making a promise to make themselves look good. God takes them out. And then, of course, you have in Revelation, Jesus doesn't want something that is lukewarm. He'll spew it out of His mouth. You know, it goes on and on. These are real statements from our God, our holy God. It's statements from Christ. His invitations to salvation are rather threatening. They certainly weren't easy. Even though we know this is not a works-based salvation that we're talking about at all, is it? It goes totally against that. But you know what? These invitations are motivated by His love, by His grace, by His majesty, His mercy, His forgiveness, His peace, and joy are all part of that. That's motivated by those things. He says, if you're not willing to give up your family, your own life and everything you own. If you're not willing to do that, you can't enter into my kingdom. Wow. You can't be my disciple. Now this is an invitation to follow Christ as we look at this, but He's checking and examining or having them to do that. So either we're all in or we're not. Let's get to our Scripture. Let's see if there is any truth to what we have just spoke about. Let's stand and pick it up at verse 25 of Luke 14. Now, large crowds were going along with Him. And He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
Four, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down, calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the others are still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, give us ears to hear these words of Christ. In your Son's name, Amen. Wow. If you're trying to gain crowds, I don't know if this is the way to do it. (laughs) Here's the setting. We've been in a house where Jesus was invited, a Pharisee, a leader of the Pharisees, on this house, invited a lot of his people to come there, invited one who he would never have invited, plopped him right in front of where Jesus was sitting because they knew that he would heal him because it's the Sabbath, it's right after synagogue. That's what you do after you have church, you go eat, right? So there they are. Jesus poses the question because he knows what this is all about. They've set him up. And he's, he's on. Game is on, man. Let's do it. And so he he asks them the question that heals the man. An absolute offense to their law. Well, that's where he uh, he's been at. And of course, the next week we talked about the parable of the great supper. That was at the meal, and more or less he was saying, "You disciples, I mean, not disciples, but you Pharisees." You've got it all wrong. And I want to tell you, it's time for your invitation to close. And I'm going to go out and bring other people in to fill up this banquet table. To fill up this room. So that was a parable that was really about the kingdom of God. Now, he's out of the house He's marching on to his destination. He's going to the cross. It starts off with something that we've been very familiar with. A lot of our texts start off with, now large crowds, they're still following him. After all he has said, they're still following him. Great multitudes, large crowds, uh, mega would be the word there. 
dealing with mega, large, huge. Now, every pastor would just love this, and I would fall into that realm too. If we had large crowds, you guys would probably kind of like that to a degree too, wouldn't you? A little bit larger. Oh, his were like tens of thousands. And, you know, Jesus was different in the way that he viewed numbers. Large crowds really didn't fool him at all. Because he knew how selfish and superficial these people really were. He knew that. Jesus was not a false recruiter. He wanted to make sure that, okay, if you're going to follow me, here is what is going to cost you. It's free, but yet you have to commit everything to Him. You have to give Him everything. He'll take care of you. Now, there is a thing called socialism promises that. They'll promise you everything. They don't tell you at the end of it that it's going to cost you everything in your life. Now, Jesus is not offering socialism. He's offering the ultimate kingdom which we would be taken care of absolutely free, but we have to commit our lives to Him. So He turned to the great multitude as they are walking. He looks back as far as He can see probably, and there are just people in mass crowds. And He stops. Maybe just kind of as He's walking, but he's talking to him. He says, yeah, that's a big crowd, all right. But you, he's thinking this. He knows most of these people really aren't real followers, not really true disciples. Now, some are. Some are genuine. You have the ones who have been the followers, the disciples, the twelve apostles, and there are others. There are, there's quite a few. But there are more who are really indifferent to Christ. They like what He says. They even like what He does especially. But they don't want to commit their lives to Him. And then there are ones who do not believe Him at all. And they would be the Pharisees and some of the people that are ridiculing Him just to see if he could foul up once more as far as their law is concerned. Everybody likes the entertainment though. What a show that he was putting on. As it, That would bring people in, wouldn't it? Especially if you had some kind of deformity, blindness, deafness, anything like that, or new people that did or even major back problems some of you can relate to, you would probably like to go, hey, I think I'll follow him for a while and see if he can do something about this. I mean, it's that's just human nature. We would want to get better. There's nothing wrong in that. We should. So, you have a crowd here that is huge, but honestly... They're lukewarm at best. And he's saying, listen, if you are not really true, 
I just as well spew you out of my mouth. Now, those aren't his words here. But he's giving a warning. Because he knows what's in the heart of mankind. He gave warnings of these kind to people because they might think that they're okay. And he says, no, no, no. No, you're not okay. Wouldn't you rather be told you're not okay and then be okay? Or would you rather think that you're okay but you're really not? Wouldn't you want to be told the truth? Why doesn't the church say these kind of things to people today? I think it's really clear. They won't have the crowds. So, Jesus knows better and it's good to take note of that. In John chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's doing great miracles. Verse 23, it says, um, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in His name observing His signs which He was doing. But, Jesus, on His part, was not not entrusting Himself to them, for He knew all men. And because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Obviously. All these people that acted like they believe Him, he knows better. He knows. They're faking it. Look in John 6, 66. He says something very clear. After they had been fed the day before, He fed the 5,000 and more. And He says, as a result of this, oh, we'll look at 65. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him from the Father. Nobody can come to Me unless they've been given to Me by the Father. You know what that does? Creates quite a stir. We're talking about the sovereignty of God and election here. This offends most people. And as a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him any more. That's sad. Jesus doesn't want those people who are not really committing to Him. You can take a hike. All of you who are not really ready to commit your life to Me, get out. That's basically what He's saying. He doesn't have to say that. They just walk away. Wow. Matthew seven twenty three. Our first point is here, is it possible to follow Christ superficially? Is it possible? Well, obviously, we know the answer, don't we? Matthew 7, 22 says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? And in Your name cast out demons, and in Your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Depart from me, 
you who practice lawlessness. Get out of here. Wow, we did all these things, Jesus. Get out of here. I don't want you. If I said something like that, I couldn't get away with that. See, I'm not God. I don't know what people's hearts are, do I? I can't read into that. He did. He says, get out. Don't come back. You're trying to gain a crowd, aren't you, Jesus? What's going on? Titus 1.16 Paul writes to Titus something of the same kind of nature. There are these kind of people seem to be religious. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. These are people who profess to know God. You know what? There's millions of them that are just like that today. You say, how can you say millions? Well, I can tell you, they say there's over a billion who profess to be Christians today. So that means millions really aren't true. So you could start taking some of the cults. Boy, that would take quite a few people out. You could probably take all the works-based salvation out. Most of the Roman Catholics would be in that part because they really don't believe in Christ alone. It's Christ plus their traditions, right? They would never say it's Christ alone or faith alone. That was the idea of the Reformation. Faith alone. That means faith plus no other things, no other works will do. It's faith. That was the cry of the Reformation. And that was true. That was biblical. So now you've got a lot of millions of people who... And then you could go into a lot of other churches that are absolute milquetoast that have nothing to do with the Bible, the liberal churches. They still exist today. Go on and on, and folks, we're starting to whittle down this billion down into probably just millions. A few million? A million? I don't know. God knows. But the multiple millions of people who are in this large crowd, Jesus more or less says, Get out. I don't know you. I never knew you. Boy, I'm not making this up. These are the words of Jesus and it's like, wow, I, I can't cover it up. I can't make it look better and more fluffy and make Jesus look a lot more comfortable. He says a lot of things that are really uncomfortable. Are you willing to follow somebody like that? Better count the cost, right? So that's the idea that is where we're at right now. He saw the crowd and he thinks, everybody's really having a great time, and you know, and they're singing and doing all that. And he says, okay, you know what? Most of you really aren't real. I want to show you, if you really want to follow me, here's what you have to do. The demands are incredible. So we're going to go to point two. Jesus must be more important than anyone. 
this is a high cost. A high, high cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. Think of Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Wrote the book, Cost of Discipleship. World War II, he was put in prison. He was trying to take care of the problem that they had in Germany. That was Hitler. The story of Hitler and Bonhoeffer stood up and he really wanted to take Hitler out is really what it came down to. But it was for the sake of righteousness. It's for the sake of Christ. And he wrote a book, The Cost of Discipleship. Well, it meant his life because he died there in prison. Never got out. Never was released. But he, it was really alluding to being a Christian this cost of discipleship and standing up for what is true and what is right. If you haven't read it, it would be a good one to read. I always think of Nandor. He read that book and did it on a Tuesday night one time. The cost of discipleship. Because it's riveting to see that a man really was a believer in Christ and was willing to give up his life. Christ bids us to come and die. Christ, that's Christ's words. Bonhoeffer emphasized that. So, we get into something here that is it's just stunning, folks. This is riveting that our Savior and the Lord said some of these things. If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It starts with family. Those are the closest people in your life. It's your family, Right? people that are close to you. And he says, you have to hate them. What? That is totally against the grain of what Christ teaches. The Bible says to love. Right? To love all people. This is my commandment that you love one another. Right? And he says, take your family for instance. you got to hate them. They they got their attention. What if you were in a crowd? I think the Jeff City Fair comes up this week. You're out there, and all of a sudden there's a crowd around, and all of a sudden you start yelling out, you can't come to Christ unless you hate your father and your mother. I mean, that's not going to go... You know, they're going to probably escort you out of there. So I wouldn't say that that would be the, uh, the thing to do. But Christ could do this kind of thing. I could see the crowd almost reeling in shock. Can you imagine the buzz that's going? What, what did he just say? What was what? You know what I mean? It's just buzzing all over the place. What? That's quite an attention getter. What truth is there to this? I think it's the most crucial tension of the text is this, that Jesus here requires every disciple to hate those whom He elsewhere commands to love. We're told that to be His disciple, one disciple has to hate another. 
to aid his father and his mother. You know what? He has made a statement before that sounds the opposite. He says, You've heard it said, Hate your enemies. But I say to you, Love your enemies. So what in the world? Hate your family, but love your enemies. Now that's that would be an incredible thought, wouldn't it? But of course, that's not the idea here. The, the, it's not enemies. It's talking about the people that love you the most, that you love the most, the people that are around you that mean so much. Family. How can Jesus command us to do that? Well, the key to resolve the tension is to be able to take the definition of the word hate as it is used in this text. Everything is always in context. You have to understand that this is a Hebraism. This is an expression that they would have been familiar with. Jesus had said uh, before that no man can serve two masters. He will love the one and hate the other. So, it's a way to indicate a preference loving one more than the other. Uh, How about God's hatred in the Old Testament? Go to Genesis 29. You have Jacob here dealing with uh, Rachel and Leah. You guys know the story? He wound up with uh, Leah kind of a bizarre accident. And he was tricked. Jacob's name means to deceive. So, the deceiver was deceived by somebody as good as he was. And so, he has Leah. Genesis 29, verse 30. So, Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. Did I say Rebecca earlier? I'm sorry. Rachel. And he served with Laban for another seven years. He went seven years to get his first wife, which was supposed to be really Rachel. But he was tricked and it turns out to be Leah. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. And he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. So Leah has the daughters, or has the sons, and 
we see that she says, I am unloved. The Lord sees and hears that she is unloved. The idea is that it's not that Jacob hated her, but he loved Rachel more. It's like uh, we're told to love everybody. To love my neighbor. Well, my neighbor next door or the neighbors across the street I love in a Christian way. But who is the one that I love more than them? Carolyn, my wife. Is it right for me to love her more than everybody else? Absolutely. Or elsewise, I'm going to be in real trouble. And that's the idea. I love her more in that way. Now, what you have here is that says the Lord has heard that I am unloved. Unloved literally means hated. Romans 9.13 Now we get Jacob again. And it's Jacob and Esau. And you probably have heard this one many times. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now it's talking about individuals. Now this is coming from Malachi, and in that, you know, it's talking about the nations that stemmed off from those individuals. But, you know, the individuals were part of that. As it comes to this, we're talking individuals. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. And it's not for anything that they did do because he did it out of his election. God did that. It says in verse 11, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. As far as they were concerned, they were, it was, He called them. He called one, really. There were two, but He calls one in as far as His loving one more than the other. That's God's purpose. It's His plan. He calls Jacob. Even though he could have said, I saw beforehand that Jacob was going to choose me, and so therefore I got him, and I saw that Esau was going to blow it, so I ate him. In this text, what did it say? Before they were born, it was before they ever did anything. It was because of his purpose. That's a tough statement. How well do we know God? Somebody could say, I don't want a God like that. And I've heard people say that. And I go, then you don't want the God of the Bible? Yeah, His ways are much higher than ours. And our understanding is not even close to His understanding and His thinking, is it? But yeah, we try to get on His level and think the way that He thinks, and we can't. We have to take it at face value. He chooses us not because of anything, but because of His love, His mercy, His grace. It's all on Him. 
what it says here. Somebody would say, that's not fair. He can't do that. Oh, are you God? (laughs) What should we say then in verse 14? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That's shocking. Well, it should be. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate My power in you and that My name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then He has mercy on whom He desires and He hardens whom He desires. Folks, that's the God that invites us into the kingdom. And if we're still saying that's not fair, then you have, you have no understanding of how big God really is. That opens up a whole new ball game if you haven't heard of that before, doesn't it? So either we take this and say it's true. Look in verse 19. You'll say to me then, well, why does He still find fault? For who resists His will then? On the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Right? Do you see what's going on there? He chose Jacob because that was in his plan. He did not choose Esau. Neither one of them was worthy. That's the whole point. Why would he even pick one human individual? There is no reason on our part that he would do it. And people always come up and say, yeah, but he saw that you you would choose him. It's before the foundation of the world. Before you were ever here. Not because He saw that you would do something. No, He foreknew you. You know, to the ones He says, depart from Me. He says, I never foreknew you. I ne-. It means relationship. I never had a relationship. I never knew you. But He knows His own, doesn't He? This is a big God. It's tension there, I know. We are to trust that invitation and say that's what I want. And you said yes if you're a believer. And you said yes not because you are more intelligent than most millions of the other people in this world or billions. Because you're better than them. It's because He opened up your heart and He gave you mercy. And all of a sudden, you know, we, we watched the, uh, the space videos the other night and it went up further and further and further. There's actually billions and billions of galaxies with trillions and quadrillions and stars and planets. Oh, it just gets bigger and bigger. And it, you know what it says? It's not about me. It's about God and His glory. That's how we view the Gospel. 
God hated Esau in the sense that he loved Jacob more. That is the context. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. This is one of Carolyn's passages that jumped out at her when she started considering the cost. And many people would identify with this passage. This is the one that I remember her sharing with me that she says this really, this is what got to her. God spoke this, 10.34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Rather incredible statements, Jesus. This time, he doesn't use the word hate. What does he do? Loving father, mother, sister, brother, whoever, more than Jesus. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Or, in Luke, he says, hate. Are we seeing the context with that now? And the Jacob and the Esau, and the, you know, the idea with Leah being loved less. That's the idea. You have to love your mother and father and brother and sister, son and daughter, less than Jesus. Or to put it better, He is first. Here's the priority order. Jesus, number one. And if anybody else comes over that, you're not worthy to be Jesus' disciple. That is the idea that Jesus is saying that. That's the thought. It means to love less. As a Christian wife, one may have an unbelieving husband. He says, I don't want you to go to church anymore. I'm tired of it. You stay here with me. Well, a wife has a duty to love her husband to be the most loving and pleasant wife that she can possibly be. That's commanded. So what does she do? Quit going to church because she's supposed to love her husband? Never. You have to explain to the husband that following Jesus Christ is more important to you than any other kind of relationship with anyone. And that means even you, my husband. Jesus is more important than you are. That's really the sum and the total of all of this, and this is for all of us. No matter how good those relationships are, there's one who takes precedence over all the other relationships. 
I've always seen, here's true joy, <laughs> Jesus, J. The O is others. Why? Yourself. Jesus is first place. Others are second. You're last. There's true joy. Anyway, that's the application. So if somebody says, hey, I don't like you to go to church, so I want you to understand something. I love you. I'd do anything that I could to please you. But if it takes precedence over my Lord and Savior, I can't listen to you. I have to do what I know is best. It's a clear application there. Verse 26. J.C. Ryle. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I don't want anybody to misunderstand what this is. It's principles of marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. It's marriage and divorce and that kind of thing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Start at verse 32. I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now he's not saying that people shouldn't get married because if that was it, uh, the end of the human race would come. Well, I guess you can't really say that today. But <laughs> Jesus, I mean, God ordained marriage, obviously, you know, and that is a good thing. But He's saying the ones who are not married yet, or even divorced, or whatever, or the you know husband wife just took off because you're a Christian, they're not, whatever. He says, here, here's the deal. You know, you're in a better situation right now than in a married situation because you still have your concern for your wife, for your family. You have to take care of them. But I want you to remember, while you're single, you can do a lot more things in ministry of the Lord than somebody who's married because there are times that they, they need to share their lives together. God meant it that way. So he takes it to the extreme of saying, hey, listen, you're not such in such a bad place at all. Look, you can serve the Lord more now than you ever could when you were married. That would be the idea. Does that make sense? He's not condemning marriage there at all. But he's, Paul's telling them that. Now we go back to our Luke passage. and We have to pick this up a little bit now. We've got it set up and it falls right into place. He says, after he talks about family, he says, even his own wife. 
He cannot be my disciple. If you don't hate your own life, now we already explained what hate is about, right? Uh, we're not talking about some morbid, uh, suicidal kind of con- condition or where you are self-destructive. We're not saying that. Hate yourself. What it means is that you consider yourself, your will, your purpose, your ambition, your desires, they are nothing compared to God's purpose and will and desire, right? Have thine own way, Lord. Right? That's the idea. My desires are unimportant compared to Your will, Lord. And then he says cross. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. His own cross. What's the idea of cross? This is the price for following Jesus. And in those days, it's what happened. People got put on the cross. It meant death. It was a symbol of death. Christ was crucified, but we all have our crosses as Christians, we give up our desires, we die to ambitions, we die to our own dreams, we die to our hopes, we die to all the things that keep us from Christ. If something is good, but it exceeds who Christ is, then take the cross. Right? Focus on the cross. It's more important than all the great things that you are and who, what you do. Abandon them to the sovereign authority of Christ. If you put them underneath Christ, say, Lord, here's what You've given me. I want to do this for Your glory. Go for it. That's the idea. If it costs you all your relationships, if that's what Christianity costs, if it costs you relationships, what does that mean? Then so be it. If it costs you your plans, that you have, so be it. If it costs you your family even, so be it. Wow. You know what? It might even cost us our physical lives. Sure happens all over the world. But there's a far greater way to glory and it's called eternal life. You know, that hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Isaac Watts, do you know what one line says? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Does that say a loadful? In that one little line there, it sums up everything that we're talking about here today. When I look at the cross, it demands my soul, my whole life, and everything about it. My all. Verse 33, I'm going to skip down. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Everything. Everything we have. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says that He bought us. We are a steward of everything that He gives us and an owner of nothing because He owns it all. He owns it all. Whatever He's given me, has He given you a house to live in? Has He given you a car? Has has He given you a bank account? Some money to, to live on? That's His. He owns it. It's all His. Does he need it? <laughs> no. But you know what? Even the money that we have, it's his. 
He wants it to be put to good use. Do you use it for the kingdom of God? Do you use it for the local church so that it can, that church continue to thrive, to continue to have a place to meet? I throw that in because there is a place to start and that's at least like 10%. Can you give 10% of your income? We're not saying all of your income. Can you give him... To, can you start with that? Or can you start with 5%? What can you do? Right? Either you're all in or you're not. That's the idea. What would you be willing to give up? Would there be something that you could give up so that you could give to the church? Or are you hanging on to things that are really not necessary and they have nothing to do with building up the kingdom? Moving on before you uh, kick me out of here. Number three. <laughs> Illustrations of counting the cost. These are quick. He just draws it up right here. Okay, he says, okay, do you get the idea? Um, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down, calculate the cost to see if he is enough to complete it? The tower, tower was for defense, uh, whether an army would be coming, or whether you had a tower for your vineyard. Because there were all sorts of different kinds of animals and creatures that would love to destroy the fruit of the vine. So you have a tower out there. But... You say, okay, this is going to cost this much. Write this down, this much. Okay, here's how much income I have. Here's how much food cost. The heat. Okay, this is going to take a while to build. Can I do that? Okay, yeah, it can be done. It's going to be hard. There are going to be things I'm going to have to eliminate. But I can do this. I can do it. We've all done that, haven't we? We've had to get into our checkbook. Oh, man, this is going to be tough. Or if there's something you want to buy and you... I can't do it. I don't have it. Then you don't do it, do you? You know, you do... Consider the cost of what it is for Christianity. We've seen it here. What are the costs? The cost is your family, the people closest to you. It's people. What are the costs? It's yourself. You have to die to self. What are the costs? My possessions, everything that I've worked for and everything I've had, He wants that too. Oh, is that really what it's about? Mm -mm. Okay. Jesus says that's fine. At least you considered the cost. I don't want you following me thinking that it's okay and then later on you find out what the cost is. Have you ever seen anybody that joins the band of Christianity join a church, they're excited for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then you don't see them anymore. Oh my, I've seen that down through that. You guys have all seen that. Happens all the time. But they start seeing that if the, if the Bible is preached, if the Bible is read, all you have to do is just read what we're reading here and say this is a lot more than what I thought. What am I getting into? Jesus would much rather you do that. He commands you to, hey, look at it. Do you really want to follow me? It means you're going to have to give up yourself. Now what if you had that for an invitation at David and the Giants concert? Uh, I'm not so sure I want to go down there about that. Consider the cost. Jesus, Jesus you'd been better if you'd just maybe tell them a little bit later. It's right up front. He says, "Here's what you, I, I will tell you what you're getting. You're getting the kingdom of God. You're getting eternal life. 
I mean, what, what could be better? A life knowing me. But you're going to have to give yourself up. I surrender all. All the hymns, they're all like that. I give up everything. He is Lord. Do we really mean that as Christians? I give up everything to the Lord, but when it really comes, are we really that way? Wow, Jesus, I don't know. That's kind of frightening. How about dealing with finishing here? You ever seen land being developed? Spend months on it, moving mountains and stuff. And then all of a sudden, you go, where's that building they were going to put up? Where's that plaza? Where's that building? Somebody had some great high thoughts. Somebody didn't consider the cost. And there it sits, unfinished. You know what I say? Something was dearly wrong there. Because you got, or you have a half-built building, a half-built plaza. Nobody's in it. You ever seen those? Yeah. You've seen them quite a bit. That's despicable, isn't it? I mean, we go, what happened there? But they didn't get it together, did they? You know what? It becomes a monument to this man's folly. People think big, but they don't consider the thought. Brings people shame. You know what John Stott said about it? Basic Christianity. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. Wow! Half-built towers. That's what one is when they say, Oh, yeah, I want to be a Christian. I don't want to go to hell. I'm going to follow this group. I'll even go to church once a week. But their lives don't change. They don't read the Bible. And they quit. They finish right there. They don't finish with Christ. They're done. Wow. They didn't calculate the cost. You know what all of these run up to? The price is high. Following Christ purposefully not unthinkingly is also the idea to think about it and realize that nobody has the resources anyway. It's Him. What are we really giving up? Something that He has already given us that He says you can still use it. It's mine. You, It's yours to use. So He finishes this up in verse 34-35, Therefore salt is good, but if even the salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We finish with this. He illustrates of not counting the cost. Here it is. Not counting the Salt is a good thing. Salt is functional. It's useful. It, it preserves things. Back at that time, it preserved meat. It preserved foods. and They didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have ice. They preserved it that way. You can think of jerky today, beef jerky, right? And salt, or you can think of some of the the hams that are you know salted, salted down, right? It's a preservative. Well, and we are the salt of the earth, right? We're the light of the world, coming from Christ. The salt in Jesus' day.
could be corrupted with other substances. And if moisture hit that salt, it would then evaporate and then left behind these impure minerals. That salt is now no good. It has no taste. It's absolutely useless. It's thrown away. It is not a preservative. So, Jesus is saying that if a follower of His doesn't live as He ought to live, He is useless to God. This is how He finishes up His message as they're walking along. He who has ears, let him hear. He says, the ones who truly want to follow Me, they understand what I say. Listen, right? And I've gotten capital letters there. Put Christ above everything else in life. Is that simple? That's what we could have done today. We could have just come in and read the Scripture and said, put Christ above everything else in life. Let's pray. But no, I took an hour to say something that we just need to be reminded on, don't we? And the way that we offer the Gospel, how it must be brought out. We're not trying to get a crowd. We're trying to get truth to them so they can count and consider what that cost really is. Do you really want to follow Christ? Here's what it means. Are you in? Are you all in? Or are you out? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this precious Word that comes from Christ. Thank You for coming into our lives and opening us up to what Your truth is so that as we look at the cost, we would say, absolutely, I'm ready to give up everything to follow Christ, to follow Him right into eternity because it means eternal life. And that's the pearl of great price. We're willing to give everything of value to Him. Whatever it is, Lord, we give to You. In Your Son's name, Amen. Amen. Following on the heels of that,